Sally and I have been um, just absolutely um, overjoyed this last week. We have um, been visiting house churches and um, really it's been an amazing experience. We've seen children and families and older people and younger people, people of every background, age and disposition gathered in the house churches in different parts of, uh, of the city. One night we, um, I don't quite know how many miles we traveled, but, um, but we were 30 minutes one way and then came back and we waved past our house and went 30 minutes the other way. And um, it was amazing to just begin to see this footprint that God is establishing across uh, this city and region. It was just marvelous to see. And we'll continue to do that if you're in house churches. Um, we will continue to be doing that over the next um, couple of months. We want to get around all of them. Um, I'm told that there's a lot of them, and so um, we'll have to give ourselves to that particular task over these next couple of months. But we look forward to seeing many of you there. And of course, if you're not a member of a house church, uh, probably just throw your Bible, maybe six feet in any direction, and you'll hit someone from a house church and then ask them if you can come to theirs. <laughs> there's, a, there's a person from a house church very near you right now. So perhaps that's the best way to get involved. Last week we um, began this uh, study on the covenant with looking at the exchange of identity that takes place when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and adopt his identity. And the reason that we adopt his identity is that he has made the way for us by allowing us to do that. And of course, he's done that by adopting our identity. Not only has the Lord Jesus become a human being, but he continues in that identity. One of the more shocking realities when you begin to reflect on the way in which God has worked in Jesus is that Jesus as a glorified human being, both God and man, is today in heaven in his humanity. He didn't give up humanity when he was ascended into heaven. He took humanity with him. And so there is a place for humanity in heaven today because he has made the way for us. It's an almost impossible concept to wrap our minds around. What I'd like to do this week is to go another step in this journey of discovering what it means to have a covenant identity in God. And ask ourselves this, how do we benefit from the new identity? How do we, <clears throat> I realized earlier that I'd forgotten the bottle of water, so I went out and fortunately, Jaron, who's a marvelous fella, had one available. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have passed out up here. How do we benefit? How do we benefit from the new identity? We sing about the new identity. 
we read about the new identity, we know that the new identity is Jesus. But how do we benefit from it? How, do, how, does, it, how does it work? How is the new identity activated on a daily basis? Because you know and I know that the old identity is always shouldering its way into our experience looking for a place to stand. Or maybe I'm the only person in the room who has that experience. Is that correct? The old identity is always looking for a way to assert itself. And so how does the new identity win the day? And we begin to live in that new identity and benefit from that new identity and the people around us benefit from that new identity so that the real change that's taken place within us begins to manifest itself throughout all of the situations, circumstances and occasions of our life. Well, perhaps to do that, what we'll, what we'll do is to go back to the initial story of covenant making that we looked at last week. And we'll look at the person of Abraham. And, um, and when we do that, uh, we'll, um, we'll just look at these few verses here. Last week we finished in Genesis 17. And there in Genesis 17, God gave Abram and Sarai new names. He gave them access to his name, the Lord, and gave them, as it were, a portion, an access, a, a foothold into his identity by offering them one of the letters of his name. Yahweh is written with the four consonants that would be translated as Y-H-W-H. -H. And two of those H's are given to Abraham, and he becomes Abraham, and to Sarai, and she becomes Sarah. The exalted father now becomes father of many nations, and the prin princess of this world now becomes a princess of heaven. But in the same passage, in the, in the same narrative flow, God indicates something that is enormously important in the symbolism of covenant. He says to Abraham, he says, from now on, you and every male in your household will be circumcised. Your foreskin will be removed and it will take place with every male at a certain point in their life very early on. Abraham, having experienced it, realizes that it's much better to get it done really early on. <laughs> Here is a mark. Here is a scar of the covenant. Now, the covenant-making peoples of the world have always understood that the, that the making of a covenant is such an indelible reality that there needs to often be an indication of that indelible nature. And so you'll encounter covenant-making people even to this day who will 
create scars on their bodies, sometimes on the, on the cheeks of their faces, sometimes on their hands or arms. And these are to indicate that their identity has been changed forever. The warrior cultures down through history often had the right of the blood brother where a scar would be made on the heel of the hand or on the wrist of the arm. Sometimes sand or dirt was rubbed into the, into the wound so that the wound would ever remain a different color from the rest of the flesh. But what was certain was that that person having made that covenant would never forget both that they had a new identity and who their covenant partner was. Imagine being in the marketplace and thinking that you could maybe take them. Maybe you could steal from them. Maybe you could, maybe you could overwhelm them physically and take what was theirs. And then you see their hand extended as they reach to maybe take something that they're going to purchase and you notice that they have a scar on their hand or their wrist. And then you pause and you think, well, there may only be one here right now, but how many stand behind them? How much power stands behind the person with the covenant scar. The scar that was given to Abraham was a scar that would be a private scar between him and the Lord and Abraham and Sarah. It would be known within their culture and within their community, but obviously would not be a scar for display. But this scar would nevertheless mark a change in identity. And a little bit like last week, I wonder whether Abraham asked himself this question. How would God ever carry a scar in his body? I mean, I get it that the Lord has manifested himself and has moved between the pieces of the sacrifice. He's come through the, the corridor of blood and he stood at my side and he said that I'm one with you. And I've done the same, Abraham thinks, and I've adopted the new identity that God has given me and now I have a new name. But how would God bear in his body, because as far as I know, Abraham thinks, God doesn't have a body. How would God be a true covenant partner and bear in his body a scar? Of course, he could not have known that 2,000 years later, the Son of God resurrected a glorified body would come into the upper room and say to his disciples, peace be with you, and then show them his hands and his side. 
scars that are indelible, that today are in heaven on the body of Christ. Telling us that his identity has changed forever. That he's one with us and he'll never give us up. That today he offers us unity with him. Not just in theory but in actuality. And he indicates to us that the scar that we bear is the scar made by the Holy Spirit as he enters our life and in the rather colorful language of the Bible circumcises our hearts. We're scarred forever within. But he carries those scars as a token of his covenant commitment to us to this day. When you, when you look at, um, this is where it gets fun, by the way. When you look at um, the emergence of covenant and the fulfillment of covenant throughout the scriptures made manifest perfectly in the person of Jesus, you see that there are three elements that eventually come to the fore in covenant. The covenant is made by a father. In the Old Testament, the fatherhood of God was represented and realized in the patriarchs. In the New Testament, because of the immediacy of the covenant where God now not doesn't stand outside of us but now comes to dwell within us by his spirit, now the fatherhood of God is represented by he himself as he comes to us. And as the father, he gives us our identity. And then the third element, obedience. Now it doesn't matter who you study in relation to the Bible covenants, you'll always find that these three elements are always present. The fact that God sovereignly chooses in his power and grace to extend to us the privilege of being in relationship with him and that that relationship changes our identity forever and that out of that identity we begin to live a life that is consistent with that identity and living a life that is consistent with that identity means that we live in obedience. Now next week we'll look at the challenge of obedience and the ways in which we can get messed up by misunderstanding the role of obedience in our life. But this week, I want us to understand that obedience is simply the outflow of your identity in Christ. Your, your identity in God is now, is now manifest, made, made real, is, is made concrete by you and I living in obedience to God. And if we were to live in obedience to God, what would it look like? 
Would it, um, oh, there we go. Would it, this is all very exciting over here. I'm loving every minute of it. There we go. What would it look like? Well, here we have the story of Abraham. And here, even at the very beginning of what it means to understand covenant, we get to grips with what it means to be obedient people. This is Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Circumcision is only a very small loss. It's a very small taking away. But it's an indication of the means by which we activate the new identity. You see, you and I, we hear about the new identity, but so often we're stuck without ever benefiting from the new identity. How many days do we spend without the conscious knowledge of peace? How many hours are we anxious and fretful how many, how many times throughout the day do we find that faith is not a friend? How often do we struggle with things that God has already won a victory in? You see, the way that God has arranged it is very simple we choose to embrace the loss in life as an opportunity to embrace 
what we've gained? What kind of loss? Well, maybe, maybe somebody has insulted you. And the natural thing to do, of course, is to, is to rush to your defense and to speak on your behalf and to, and to exercise your right for justice. Or you could choose the loss of reputation as an opportunity to embrace a new reputation. Perhaps it could be the loss of approval, very similar to reputation. Someone makes it clear that they do not approve of you. Well, the natural thing to do, of course, is to, is to try to find ways to impress them. Maybe if I did something a bit better than I did before, maybe I could gain their approval. Maybe I could run around like a headless chicken, wearying myself, seeking the approval of others. After all, that's what everybody else does in America. Or we could choose the loss of that approval as an opportunity to embrace a much greater approval, the approval of our Father in heaven. Almighty God approves of us. And when we find that we embrace even momentarily the reality of that new identity by choosing to say the loss is something that I'm not simply going to live with but I'm going to embrace. Then in our lives, in our hearts, through our experience, we begin to sense the surging, coursing, creative presence of God bringing to us the peace and the love and the joy that we knew nothing of previously. You see, being a Christian means having a better life. Not a better life in the fact that you've got a nicer car or a bigger house or any of those things, but a better life in the sense that everything that's going on inside of you is beginning to be resolved by the grace of God. Those external pressures no longer influence you in the way that they influence other people because those external pressures now are used by the Lord and embraced by you as loss and gain. And it may well be that in the midst of your circumstance, maybe a circumstance that God has not specifically brought to your life, but a circumstance that you've encountered, 
a circumstance that's perhaps consistent with a fallen universe, a fallen world, a fallen humanity. People are doing things around you and to you and circumstances seem to be set against you. It's not that God is somehow, as a puppeteer, creating these circumstances to make you feel bad. But they're things that the enemy is doing, that the flesh is exciting, that the world is conspiring to create, and yet you and I choose a different path from the path that everyone else chooses in the world. Because we choose in the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of those challenges, in the midst of the suffering, to embrace a new identity and accept the loss of an old one. It's fascinating when you look at what Paul describes in his conversation with Peter. This is a conversation that, that he has with Peter. Peter really has grasped this understanding that he, he lives with a new identity. When he saw the man healed at the beautiful gate, he made it clear to the crowd that it was not his piety or power that healed the man, but the name of Jesus and faith in that name. And then when he's with a man called Aeneas, he says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. He knows that there's no capacity or power in himself, but only in the new identity that he's embraced, the identity that Jesus has given him in the covenant transaction when he's given him a new name, you are now Petros. But still, Peter struggles from time to time. Leaders from Jerusalem have come to Antioch. Peter's there in Antioch. Paul's there in Antioch. Barnabas is there in Antioch. The leaders have come from Jerusalem and they're looking at these Gentile believers and they're saying they've got way too much liberty. They've got way too much freedom. Why are they not keeping all of the rules of the Old Testament? And Peter begins to be stumbled by what it is that they're saying and finds himself being drawn into that kind of web of false teaching. And Paul challenges him publicly and says, you live like a Gentile most of the time. What are you doing, you hypocrite? I don't think I'd have liked to have had an argument with Paul. I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether you'd have been okay with that. And then Paul goes on to say this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Jesus has come and taken my place, says Paul. 
And because he's taken my place, I'm going to take his place. And I'm going to live by that reality from now on. My faith is going to be focused in him. And I'm not going to choose the old life of comparison and competition. Now, you know, I write books and I've got a kind of a public thing that I have to do. And so sure, I'm on social media. And I look at it once a day just to make sure that there's nobody on there saying wicked things. That's all I do. And I'm fortunate there's a, a person that works within the kind of wider organizations that I serve who does all that for me. And then I meet people whose lives are ruled by the comparison and the competition that they see there every day. And little by little, their peace is worn away by the constant comparison, by the constant competition, by the, the constant striving to be something, to be recognised, to, to get the likes. Ah, what we forfeit when we choose the way of the world. Because that momentary pleasure of that extra like is nothing in comparison with the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ that's always available. The peace of Christ that frankly is always resident in our lives, just simply not evident. You know, you can have things that are resident and not evident. I feel like I'm talking to a library. Um, what I need to do right now is to ask you to interact with this a little bit, all right? Turn to the person next to you and say, things can be resident and not evident. Just say that to a person next to you. Yeah? I like the respectful silence, but sometimes I do wonder Things can be resident without being evident. The peace of Christ that passes understanding. Is it evident? Is it evidently guarding your heart and your mind? Well, if it isn't, then there is a loss to be embraced and a gain to be experienced. Paul, when he was trying to explain this to people that had kind of got a bit above themselves in the church in Corinth, here is a man who has been given the responsibility of writing two-thirds of the New Testament and he somehow got to explain 
the nature of his ministry to a group of people in the church in Corinth. And rather than saying, listen, idiots, I'm way more important than you. He says this. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I grew up with a condition called dyslexia. It wasn't, um, it wasn't particularly well known back in the 19th century when I was a small child. <laughs> and, um, and people didn't really know how to deal with it. And so they just assumed that I was slower than the rest of the children. The fact was that every time they tested my intelligence, they they couldn't work it out. He seems to be a very bright boy. But there's something wrong somewhere. Now in the world that I lived in, in the workhouse along with Oliver Twist, <laughs> the, um, there, there was punishment if you didn't do the right thing. There was a yard ruler that was smacked across the back of your legs if you were naughty in class. And um, if you didn't do well at certain things, then you were excluded. And um, I was regularly punished for not doing the right things and preparing for the spelling test. And eventually excluded and sent to a small portable building on the other side of the school campus with the other children who were not able to do the things that they needed to do. And so we would be crocodiled across the playground at the age of seven and sent to a little room until you could learn to read. Now, living with the sneers of the other children, I think left something of a wound within me. And it wasn't until, remarkably, I was 15 or 16 years old that I realized that, that the wiring that had prevented me from reading had somehow been overcome and I could read. At the age of 11, I had the reading age of a seven-year-old. At the age of 15, I had the reading age of an 18-year-old. Something had happened. Apparently, dyslexics often go through this moment of compensation, but for me, it seemed miraculous because the, 
The person that was challenging me to read a book was challenging me to read the Bible. It was my religious education teacher at school, a returning American missionary from Africa on her way home, teaching a few classes in our school. She lent me a Bible. And for the first time in my life, I committed to reading from cover to cover, and I could do it. The very first book I ever decided to read, cover to cover, was the Bible. I never could understand years later when people say, I find it difficult to read the Bible. I'm thinking, you must be crazy. Are you kidding me? It's the best book in the world. And of course, I've been reading it every day since then. And so that was an amazing thing for me and particularly amazing that God had planned that I would write lots and lots of books. Who would have thought? Only by grace could such a plan be conceived and then fulfilled. But there's been many occasions when I've found that, that feeling of inadequacy, insignificance, foolishness reemerge. And when it does, I have to choose do I embrace the loss and look to Christ as my gain? Or do I somehow try to cover it and pretend that it's not there? My daughter Rebecca is right there, our eldest daughter. She was just learning to walk um, several years ago. Uh, and um, we needed to clear the backyard. I think I've told this story, I'll just mention it briefly. We need to clear the backyard. I, I went out and I got a double-handed scythe. I cut down the waist-high grass in the backyard. Then I got a rotary mower from the church, gloried in the name of hater. Mowed the backyard. Came across two ants' nests, the kind that eat small children. <laughs> and so I thought, well, they've got to die, obviously. I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I couldn't think how to kill them. Maybe it was one of those dyslexic moments, I don't know. I checked with my dad later. He would have done what I thought he would have done because I said, what would my dad do? I know, gasoline. So I went to get a can of gasoline and I poured it over the ant's nests and I couldn't find any matches. I think there was an angel saying, get the matches. The idiot is in the yard. I overcame that particular spiritual battle. I found the matches on top of the cupboard. I got them. It was the middle of August. So you don't really need to throw the match. You just have to strike it in the vicinity. And so that's what I did. And as you would say in England, I was surrounded by the ensuing conflagration. The whole of the backyard seemed to be on fire. The ants had had their private Hiroshima. There was a, 
there was a trail of flames back to the gas can and the plastic spout was already alight. I thought, I think that's a bomb. (laughs) And so I decided to grab the can and get it away from the flames. But of course the can was hot. And so I dropped the can. Now, if there are any children here who want to make flamethrowers, the way you do it (laughs) is you get a gas can and a spout and you light the spout and then you eject what's in the can through the spout and you have a flamethrower. So there are flames now, great gouts of flame all around the yard and on me. So now I'm on fire. My feet are on fire, my trousers are on fire, my socks are on fire. And I have the voice of the safety film guy at school saying, in the event of a household fire, drop on the ground and roll around. And I thought, that's not a solution right now. (laughs) Whole place is on fire. So I flicked off one of my shoes. It was like a slow motion movie of one of those Second World War bombers. It was on fire, it had little flames coming out the back, it went into the neighbor's yard, caused a little fire there. (laughs) And then something came over me and I said, God, please help me, because I was panicking. All the flames went out. Went back home and into the house. Sally had just returned from a walk with Becky. She said, what's the smell? I said, I've I've just been burning a few things in the backyard, it's fine. (laughs) She said, why why are you smoking? (laughs) Well, she got me to remove my pants and sure enough, there are great folds of skin hanging off my legs and I had to go to hospital. I had third degree burns. They became septic. I was put in an isolation room. Nobody could see me except a nurse once or twice a day to come and change the bandages. And in the midst of that, I felt so foolish. So foolish. But somehow, the Lord was working in my heart. Somebody sent a cassette of a person's testimony. I listened to it carefully. And what I heard the Lord say very clearly was this. He said, let me do it. You see, the calling to be a preacher and a leader in the church was not going well at that time. Nobody was getting saved. Very few people were being affected or touched. Definitely nobody was being healed. You see, I was trying to do it myself and cover up the feelings of insecurity that I had from time to time. But in that moment, I realized that the Lord wanted me to embrace my weaknesses, embrace my tendencies to foolishness, Embrace even the insults that would come my way when people heard the story. And in that weakness, something began to happen. Revival 
began to bubble up to the surface of my life and then touched the lives of others. First ones and twos and then tens and twenties. And over a period of time, a great torrent of blessing. And the blessing would always be staunched whenever I thought it was me. And it would always be released whenever I realized it was him. So what today is your opportunity? What today is the difficulty, the struggle, the obstacle, the insult, the loss, the grief? What is it? What today can be the means of transaction that allows you to say, do you know what? I'm going to count that as loss. And I'm going to receive what it is that God has for me. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to let him do it. I'm not going to strive for those little instances of justice in the workplace. I'm going to let him be the judge and jury. And I'm going to let him work in me to do the remarkable work of grace that only he can. Now there are nuances to this and there are things that we need to think about carefully in the coming weeks but right now at this raw moment I want you just to think about it. Where is the opportunity now for the benefits of the new identity to really come home? Peace instead of anxiety. Joy instead of that besetting sadness. Love instead of the bitterness that we sometimes harbor in our hearts. I wonder if the prayer team would come and help me. I think some of you need to pray this morning. I think this moment of opportunity to pray is a moment when you can choose to lose some credibility, perhaps supposed credibility, and come out and pray. You see, that's one of the reasons why people don't come forward, is because they haven't quite yet got how the transaction works. You choose to lose so that you can gain. So whatever it is today, as we pray, I invite you to come. So you come, and I'll begin to pray in a minute. If this is for you today, and it's for several, then I want you to come and pray with me. And prayer team, you get ready when it's time. Now I know how the battle in our heart works, because maybe this is feeling too vulnerable a place. But remember that in our vulnerability, in our weakness, 
God's power is made perfect. And so you come too, even as you wrestle right now. Lord, we want to say very clearly this morning that we long for the daily experience of the new life that you've given us. Lord, we're so conscious of living the old life instead of the new life. We're so conscious of the fruit of the old life rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that where we have anxiety because of loss, that, Lord, we would choose to release that loss into your hands and embrace the new life that you offer. Lord, we want what is resident in us to become evident in our lives. And we know, Lord, that when you came into our life, you came with peace, with joy, with power. And so, Lord, I pray for each dear one here that, Lord, they would know peace today as they turn away from this loss, this struggle, this difficulty. I pray for each one, Lord, that peace would bubble up as joy. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of weakness, your power would be made perfect. Lord, we don't want to live a Christian life that is just managing or mediocre. We want, Lord, to live the life of the more than conquerors that you call us to be. And so, Lord, we choose to, to say that we count everything as loss for the gain of knowing you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. God bless you.